As Nick just read portion of our sermon text, would you please take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah 63 and 64 this morning. Isaiah 63 and 64. I'd like for you to have God's Word open on your lap to be able to follow along in this text. This is our 39th study in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. And I feel like, as we have done a couple of times throughout these 39 weeks, I feel like it's a good time for a summary and a review. So if you would, please allow me to just take a moment to review where we've been. And I'll just be honest with you, uh, if you feel like Isaiah has been so big, so rich, so deep, so complex and at sometimes confusing, then welcome to the club. It's taken me 39 weeks to sort of get my arms around just the big picture perspective to be able to talk about it in these terms. I've, I've provided a note sheet there for you so that maybe those of you who uh, like to, to see things might be able to visualize Isaiah a little bit better, and some of you can make notes there. But what we have mentioned many times is that the, the book of Isaiah is God's message to God's kings and God's people through God's prophet Isaiah. And his message is summed up basically like this. You've turned away from me to trust yourselves, to trust other people, to trust other gods. Turn back to me and trust me. I am the Lord, your God. That's Isaiah in a nutshell. Trust me. I am the Lord, your God. And Isaiah can be broken down into two main parts. Part one, God confronts the sin. That's in chapters 1 through 39. And then the book and the story drastically turns in chapter 40 through 66, when God comforts his people. So the first part of Isaiah is confrontation of sin. The second part, comforting his people. Isaiah is about God restoring the glory of his people through judgment and salvation. So in part one, we see the narrative of Isaiah not not going from uh, start to finish in one steady line, kind of increasing in climax to the end of the story. But what we've discovered, as we have studied now for 39 weeks, is that Isaiah sort of goes up and down and up and down and spirals in and out and 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 sort of has the same themes over and over again so that he's emphasizing this narrative. And so what we see in the first part are four plot lines where God confronts the sin first of Judah, then of the nations and gives uh, oracles of judgment against 11 nations on earth. And then God uh, confronts the sin of the whole world, the whole earth at one time. And and in chapters 24 through 35, 
uh, many have likened it to the little apocalypse where we see final judgment going on, even in the first half of this book. And then in chapter 36 through 39, there's sort of a, a historical interlude where we jump right into the real history of the real people on real planet Earth of of Judah in about 740 to 700 B.C. And we see that God is acting out His judgment against their sin. First of all, the sin of Israel to the north, where God allows Assyria to conquer them and take them into captivity in 722. And then, about 120 years later, God prophesies that he's going to do the same thing with his people in the south, Judah. Except not through Assyria, he's going to use Babylon to come and conquer his people in judgment of their sin. So God confronts the sin of his people the nations, and the whole earth in chapter 1 through 39. And then God comforts his people. He deals with their sin. But then in the last portion of the book, to his covenant people, God promises salvation through his servant. God achieves that salvation through the suffering of his servant for his people. And then God applies that salvation to his people through his conquering warrior so that God's original plan is fulfilled. That his glory will shine through his people to the ends of the earth. Well, we're in that last section. Chapter 56 through 66. Salvation is being applied to God's people and the plot line of This last section, chapter 56 through 66, is in that very familiar form of a chiasm. A chiasm, if you'll recall, is a literary form that takes an A, B, C, C, B, A type formula, or A, B, B, A, where the beginning and the end are structured in the same way, either flowing together or in opposite to emphasize the middle. And as Isaiah has done many times in this last section, it's good for us to understand that these are not just pieces of Scripture that are just sitting there isolated as if Isaiah got up one morning and thought, oh, I'm going to jot down something this morning and put it on a piece of paper. He didn't do that. This last section is structured so that it emphasizes seven different parts. You're going to see humility, covenant faithfulness, and then a divine warrior, all to emphasize that God is fulfilling His ultimate plan so that His glory shines on His people 
to the nations in chapters 60 and 62. And then what Isaiah does is he comes out of that and he emphasizes the divine warrior again, except this time, whereas before the divine warrior was sent, now the divine warrior emerges victorious. And that's where we were last week, or at least on Resurrection Sunday two weeks ago. The divine warrior emerges victorious. And then after that divine warrior emerges victorious, the prophet then wonders what is going, what is God going to do about the reality that covenant faithfulness still does not mark his people? And then in chapter 66, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that God assures his people that his salvation will secure the humble in righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth, and it will bring the proud to justice at the final judgment. We're in this section where humility and covenant faithfulness and the divine warrior are now flipped over and The last text we studied was this divine warrior emerging, drenched in the blood of God and God's people's enemies, victorious. But our sermon text today, in Isaiah 63b and 64, Isaiah the prophet is wrestling with the utter inability of God's people to love God and to live in covenant faithfulness. Even after the divine warrior has secured it for them. Do you ever feel that way? How was your week? Were you faithfully able to live out covenant faithfulness? Were you able to live out true religion to those in your own home? Where your heart that beats for God came out in holiness with your spouse and with your kids? Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you just turn to your spouse and ask them right now, how this pet, no. <laughs> don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Were you able to live out true religion to those in your workplace when they got on your nerves or when you were treated unfairly? Church, we are the new covenant people of God. And God's promise of salvation has already been achieved through God's divine warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's already been applied to our hearts. And yet we are still prone to wander into unfaithfulness, aren't we? What's God going to do about that? Sin-weary Christian? What do we do when we feel our own unfaithfulness? 
Isaiah teaches us what to do in our sermon text today. Isaiah teaches us to recount the steadfast love of God to his sinful people and ask for more. Because by recounting God's steadfast love to his people and asking for more, the love of God becomes the source and spring that fuels our love for him. So let's now look at the text in Isaiah chapter 63. Two main parts. This first part is in chapter 63, verse 7 through 14. Nick already read that for you. What does the prophet do in light of the reality of the unfaithfulness of God's people? The first thing that Isaiah does is he recounts the steadfast love of God to his sinful people in the past. When Isaiah the prophet, the, the, the one who's responsible to help shepherd God's people, when he looks out and sees unfaithfulness, what does Isaiah do? He recounts the steadfast love of God's to his sinful people in the past. And what we see here in verse 7 through 14 is that when you do this, you're going to see a history of the abundant love of God. You're going to see a history of God choosing his people in covenant and becoming their savior, but they rebel. They rebel again. So look there in verse 7. We see the abundant, steadfast love and the great goodness of God. And, and just note those adjectives to make sure that we understand. This is no uh, measly, puny love and goodness of God. Verse 7, the prophet says, I will recount. I'm going to call to mind, bring to remembrance, and talk to you about the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. In verse 8, God chooses Israel to be his people with a future faithfulness in view. For he says, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Now, was it that God didn't know his people were going to be this way? No, God's got the end in view. God's going to make us people who do not deal falsely. So out of that abundant love of God, he makes a covenant with his people. Surely they are my people. And what does he do? Verse eight and nine and verse eight and nine. God becomes their savior. He enters into their affliction with them. He saves them by his presence, his love and his pity. He redeems his people and he lifts them up and carried them all the days of old. This is God's history with his people. Read the Old Testament when Isaiah in 740, 700 BC, still had a couple of thousand years of God's dealing with his people to look back on. And Isaiah says, this is what you're going to find. But then reality comes in. Look at verse 10. 
But even with that abundant love to his covenant people, verse 10, but Israel rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. God's people continue to rebel and choose to sin and live in covenant unfaithfulness, which brings God's judgment on them. What does God do? What would you do with such a fickle and unfaithful people? Here's what God does. Verse 11, Then, God remembered. Then he, God, remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. You see, in the face of our unfaithfulness, God remembers his covenant. God remembers his love for the people that he has chosen for himself. Charles Spurgeon says, God soon turns from his wrath but never turns from his love. Aren't you glad about that? C.S. Lewis said, though our feelings for God come and go, his love for us does not. His love for us is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and whatever cost to Him. Friends, that's the gospel. The relentless, determined love of God in the face of our relentless addiction to sin. God remembers his covenant love. And in verse 11 through 14, we see what comes out of that. It's, it's the example of the Exodus. The Exodus shows us that God's plan has always been to redeem a sinful people through his shepherd, Moses, with the presence of his spirit. And then look in verse 12 and 13, the strength of his arm, which was directly tied to his servant Moses, so that when Moses raised up the rod or raised up his arm, God's arm acted through his servant, dividing the waters to lead the people to safety and security. And then verse 14, that God's plan has always been to redeem a sinful people for. What's the ultimate reason that God has redeemed sinful people for the glory of his own name. Listen, friends, here's the gospel, the really, really good cosmic news that God wants to make himself famous by being gracious to sinners who will come to him. God wants to be known as a God who is How did he describe it in Exodus 34? I am the Lord, the self-existent one, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God introduced himself as a God who was full of mercy, grace, and not just love, but what? Steadfast, relentless, faithful love to his covenant people. What does the prophet do? Even after he sees the divine warrior emerging victorious to apply the salvation to God's people, and he looks at the people and he still sees unfaithfulness. The prophet doesn't write off God's people. The prophet preaches a message to God's people. He prays for God's people and he does this. He recounts God's steadfast love to his sinful people from old. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. The prophet does a second thing. He doesn't just recount the steadfast love of God from the people in history. In the rest of chapter 63 and all of chapter 64, Isaiah, the prophet of God, asks for more. That's what we learned from this text this morning. That you and I, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness and sin, we can come to a God who is abundant in grace. We can humble ourselves before Him, confess our unfaithfulness, and ask God for more mercy, more grace, and more abundant love. That's exactly what the prophet does here. In chapter 63, verse 15, through the end of 64, Isaiah uh, prays for more precisely because he knows God's plan of redemption. He knows that God wants to glorify himself by giving grace to sinner. And so he prays these three things in these three sections. Number one, Isaiah prays, look down. Number two, Isaiah prays, come down. And then Isaiah prays, remember your covenant, not our sin. Three sections in Isaiah's prayer for more. First of all, in verse 15 through 19 of chapter 63, Isaiah prays to God, look down and see our situation, God. Look down and see us. Let's read this. Isaiah 63, 15 through 19. Look down. Look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. 
though Abraham does not know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down our sanctuary. We have become like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh God, look down and see the situation that we're in. See the ridiculous inadequacy of that we have to keep our faithfulness in our covenant. Oh God, please look at the mess that we've made. Look there in verse 15. Look down from your beautiful, high, and holy place and see our situation and stir up your passion for us again. Verse 16, why? Because you're our father. Now, dads, what would you do for your kids? And you're a sinner sinner who has limits. Imagine our holy Father in heaven who has no limits, who's abundant in grace and mercy and steadfast love. You are our Father. Then verse 17 through 19, we, we're your rotten children. (laughs) Please don't leave us to ourselves. Please return to us. We've shown our unfaithfulness again and we've made a mess of, look there, your your house where everything's trampled and ruined and we've become like people that were never called by your name in the first place. We are in a mess. So the prophet prays, look down and see our situation. Secondly, the prophet prays, come down. Come down and deliver us from the filth of our sin. Look in chapter 64, verse 1 through 7. Don't just look down, God. Come down. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have become like the one who is unclean in all our righteousness deeds, pardon me, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquity. The prophet looks at the plight of God's people and sees unfaithfulness, inability to live in covenant faithfulness and live in true religion. What does the prophet do? He prays, come down. Oh, that you would tear open the heaven, the sky, and come down with such power that the earth would quake. And why? Verse 2 and 3, to make your name known to your enemies and to make the nations tremble at the power of Israel's God. Verse 4, to act for those who are waiting for you. Time out. What is your hope in life and death? What is your real hope to be delivered from your sin? Are you waiting for yourself to do that? Or are you counting on God to do that? Waiting on God is trusting God to do what you cannot do. The prophet says here, come, tear the heavens open, come down and hit the earth like an earthquake for those who know our own inability and are waiting for you to save us from our sin. And in verse 5 through 7, he gives three metaphors to make sure we know how terrible our sin is. Metaphor number one, our sin makes us unclean. Unclean like a leper's garment. Unclean like a menstrual cloth. That's how unclean and heinous our sin is. Metaphor number two. Our sin brings death just like a leaf fades, crumbles, and flies away in the wind. Our sin brings us to the same mortal end. Metaphor number three, and our sin separates us from God's favor. His face is turned away from us and we're delivered over. Did you see that at the end there of verse of verse uh, seven? We're delivered over and we melt in the hands of our iniquities. Scary, scary imagery. So the prophet recounts the steadfast love of God to his sinful people and prays for more. Lord, look down, see our situation, and then come down and deliver us from the filth of our sin, finally. In the last section, verse 8 through 12. When you come down, Please remember your covenant, not our sin. Please don't, don't remember our sin. Remember your covenant love for your people instead. So in verse 8 through 12, 
But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you're our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, it's been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? Will you afflict us so terribly? Look down. Come down. And remember your covenant, not our sin. The prophet acknowledges immediately that we exist because of you. You, You're the potter. We're just the clay. We wouldn't even be here except that you gave us life like a father gives life to his children. Please don't be angry. Don't there. Verse nine. Don't remember our sin. Why? Behold, look, we are all your people. Please don't remember our sin. Remember what? Your covenant love to us. Verse 10 and 11. We've made a mess of the place. Look at your city. Look at your house. It's all in ruins. Look look what our sin has done again. And at the end there in verse 12, there are three rhetorical questions that all have that image of a fatherly relationship. It's a plea for grace. But the prophet puts it in rhetorical questions. Will you restrain yourself from us? Which means what? Please don't restrain you. Please move toward us with your mercy, grace, and love. Father, will you keep silent? The answer is no. Speak to us. Speak grace to us. Speak life to us. And then third, and afflict us so terribly. Are you going to continue to punish us according to what we deserve? In rhetoric, please, please give us your grace. Sin-weary Christian, when you see your unfaithfulness to God, when you feel your own inadequacy to live out the true religion, for which God has redeemed you. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't look to yourself. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross where we see God's 
mercy, grace, and steadfast love for his sinful people. And it's at the cross where we have confidence to ask for more. Friends, at the cross, we know that God has looked down and seen our situation. It's at the cross where while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us at the cross, where while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, we know that God has looked down and seen what it's going to take to put our sin to death and to give us eternal life. At the cross, we see that God has come down. He didn't just look down, but God has come down in Christ, in power, to rescue us from the filth of our sin. You remember what happened at the cross, right? I mean, some of the same language that's here in in, uh, Isaiah happens again in the gospel accounts of the cross, where the heavens are rent and there's earthquakes. Listen to Matthew chapter 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded of his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and the dead were raised to life. And in verse 54, Matthew says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. At the cross, we know that God came down to rescue us from our sin. And it's at the cross, and frankly, only at the cross, where we are assured that God will remember His new covenant in Christ, not our sin. How do you know that your sins are not piling up every day until on the final day you will stand before a holy judge and give account for every word, every thought, every deed? How do you know Look at the cross. Because at the cross, God did away with sin. Jesus rose victorious over sin and lives every single day as our advocate at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us to where John says in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing this letter to you so that you won't sin. Please don't sin. 
But if you do, here's the good news. You have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because you're not. (laughs) He is at the right hand of the Father right now. Saying to God, I paid for that sin too. Friends, when you feel your unfaithfulness, look at the cross. Don't quit and don't look at yourself, but look at the cross because it's at the cross where we know God looked down and saw our situation. God came down and rescued us from sin and God will not remember our sins, but instead will remember the new covenant that he made with all who will come to his son by faith. What a glorious message of Isaiah 63 and 64. Friends, that's why. That's why we come to church every Sunday. That's why you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. That's why sniffles shouldn't keep you home. That's why getting up on a Sunday morning and not feeling like coming shouldn't keep you home. That's why it ought to be a priority to gather with God's church because where else is some crazy person going to stand up here and recount the steadfast love of God to sinners and then encourage you to what? Ask for more. That's why we have community groups. So that on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday or a Sunday, we can sit around a table with other sinners and hear about the difficulties of a sin-weary life and hear each other say, but God has more grace than you have sin. Look at the cross, brothers and sisters. This is why we get up in the morning or end our day in the evening or both, if you're a gold star Christian, I guess, by reading the Word. Because it's in the Word that is a recounting of God's covenant love to His very unfaithful people. And then encouragement after encouragement after encouragement to look at the cross and trust God for more. Are you weary of your sin? Look at the cross and celebrate the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that it's at the cross where we see your mercy and your grace and your steadfast love for sinners. Sinners who will come humbly to Jesus. Sinners who turn their back on sin and come to Christ in repentance and faith because it's at the cross where we find hope in this life and the next. 
I pray that you would do a good work in our hearts through this gospel message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and let's sing.